All right, so we're picking up in the book. It is on page 55 in the study guide. And last I checked, there were still books back there. I didn't check today, so I don't know if there's still some. I assume there is. So if you need a book, go look in the box. It's right by the entryway. And if there's no books back there, let me know. And so I'm going to do, I'm going to go through the review. And then if you have any questions or comments you want to make about that, think about them while, we, while I do the review. And if, you, if no one comes up with any more comments in the review, I'm not going to ask for comments in the review because I think I'm wasting my time. So that's OK. Uh, so we talked about last week about how Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2 verse 4 and that the just shall live by faith. And a key aspect here is that you don't just read the quote, go back and read the entire book because there's a lot of things that fit. And we pointed out if you go in there, you find that in that immediate context, he's also talking to the Gentiles, right? the, the Chaldeans that are going to come in and destroy the Jews. And God's saying, yeah, I know they're bad. They're probably worse than the Jews and they're going to get punished too. And if you understand that, then it seems, if you make that connection, it does seem like that part is a little bit of a dig against the Jews too. It's like, well, listen, you know, if you wanted, if you want to complain about it now, I guess you just should have lived by faith, right? That's the problem. That's what God has always wanted. That's always what He wanted. And it turns out that on that, He's in, God's an equal opportunity offender. As somebody pointed out, also He's an equal opportunity blesser. Okay, because both of the Jews and the Gentiles find themselves in the same situation in that case. Back in Habakkuk, and this may be really smart too, because it's possible that the Opponents are quoting this passage. Oh, but we gotta, we got to live by our faithfulness to the Torah. And he's like, um, have you read the rest of the book of Habakkuk? Right? It's like, we don't look very good. The Jews are not looking very good in that. That's, the context doesn't fit. Uh, so we also talked about how contrasting faith versus works, that's how Paul talks about them, is if you, know, you, you go back to the works of the law, and then he is thinking about the context of the law here, uh, the works have to be done. So you get a blessing, if you want to be justified by the, by the works of the law, if you do it. That's the, that's the key distinction here. And then we talked about the curse that he mentions in chapter 3. We quotes, Paul quotes back in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And I think the simplest way to put it is that the passage in Deuteronomy 21 speaks of bearing the curse. You know, we talked about like bearing the hatchet. And we mean causing peace. In this case, I think he means like bearing the curse. That's what it means back in Deuteronomy 21. If you look at the other passages, Joshua 8, Joshua 10, uh, Zechariah 13, you see all these other passages, how it's used. It does seem to be used pretty consistently like that, which fits because that's what happens in the New Testament where God ends the law and by ending the law, removes the curse that was in the law and therefore freeing us. All right. This is your last chance to make a question or a comment. See, now nobody's going to make a question or a comment, which is, I guess, you voting to say you don't want me to do this. So that's okay, too. All right. Uh, so that's it. Then we're going to go ahead and have a prayer, and then we'll get started. So today we're going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 15, and a lot of what we're going to talk about here is the difference between prom promise, believing, and covenant keeping. The, a question that Paul is going to raise is why then the law? 
why bother having the law? Because it looks like the law seems to undo or look very different than the Abrahamic covenant, which is this point. There's a contrast here. Well, then why have the law at all? Right? It seems like a weird sidestep, a detour. And I'm going to play with, to you this short video. And it, it's in Hebrew, but it has subtitles. So the people who listen to this online are going to be super confused, unless they're listening from Jerusalem. The, she's going to talk about the purpose of the law. And I like the way she puts it, because when you, I think we have a little bit of an anachronistic view on what was going on back then, and that this was not God's ultimate idea of what right and wrong looked like. It was a hint at it, but it wasn't quite all the way there. And so I think she's right on. or comments that you, or something that stuck out to you. Did that make sense? All of you who know who you appear? I do think it's easy to think of the Israelites as some special, nice, you know, godly people, which is what God wanted, but they were chosen out of nations of, of just people. So... Right, exactly. And, so, and I think it's, we're a little bit anachronistic, because you're right, we think of them as being all these holy people. It's like, yeah, well, that's what they're supposed to be, right? You, you read the rest of the story, like, there's some pretty serious problems that are going on there. They came from the people who were slaves in a very pagan society. And surprisingly, when you go back and think about it, how much could they have even known about God and about the way God wanted to think about these things? So they inherited these things from their society around them. Anything else? Oh, yes, ma'am. Yeah, true. We, we shouldn't act like 
the Jews back then were necessarily as far ahead as we might like to think either. I remember thinking about how, I think one of the reasons we struggle with why did God have the Canaanites destroyed is in some cases because we don't hate sin enough. We don't really realize how dark it really is. And so what happens is, is I remember C.S. Lewis was pointing out how we act like sin's not that big of a deal, and then we're shocked to find some of the things where God responds to it as if it's a big deal are shocked to us. Well, that's because we have to go back and think about the nature of sin. And I, there was somebody who put together a list of modern movies, it was a few years ago, that referred to bestiality in them in a way that was not to put it down. And I was like, looking at this list, I was like, okay, this is pretty weird. And a lot of, some of them were kind of mainstream, some of them were not. So there are ones out, some of them were, which it was really, really dark. So you look at this and you think, you know, even something like that may not be as disgusting to people as you might think it should be. I mean, there was one documentary the guy pointed out how the, the author of the documentary cited, said, I tried to, how am I trying to put it? Basically get the sleaze out of it, the way that he would put it together, a bestiality. And it was a whole documentary on it. I mean, this tells you people are more attracted to this than you might think. At least some people are. So you're not wrong. Anything else? All right, so let's go ahead and read Galatians 3.15. I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 7. So we're going to wind up covering that section more than once because there's not an easy cut line. I mean, this is true for a lot of books. The verse markers are just made up by somebody. In this case, I think it's even harder. So I'm going to go through 15 to 4.7, and then we're going to, next time on Wednesday, uh, so a week from now, we're going to pick up and cover some of that section in chapter 4 again. By the way, and I forgot about this, on Sunday, we're going to take up with three topical sermons, topical lessons. Hopefully it's not a sermon. Uh, the, the first one's going to be on Sunday, which is going to be the comparing and contrasting the new law versus the old law. So that's in the study guide in the appendix at the end. You'll, you'll see it in the email, but that'll be the first one we do. Okay, chapter 3, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, I offer an example from everyday life. When a covenant has been ratified, even though it's only a human contract, no one can set it aside or add anything to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his descendant. Scripture does not say, and to the descendants, referring to many, but, and to your descendant, referring to one who is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law that came 430 years later does not cancel a covenant previously ratified by God so as to invalidate the promise. For if... The inheritance is based on the law. It is no longer based on the promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the arrival of the descendants to whom the promise had been made. It was administered through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary is not for one party alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything and everyone under sin so that the promise could be given because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and to those who believe. Now before, before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners until the coming faith would be revealed. Thus the law had become our guardian until Christ, so that we could be declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For 
All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a minder, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set forth by his father. So also we, when we were minors, were enslaved under the basic forces of the world. But when the appropriate time had come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to, fulf- to redeem those who were under the law, so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. And because you are sons, God spent the spirit of his son into our hearts, who cries, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you are also an heir through God. All right. What kind of things did you notice or questions did you have about that? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I like how you put it. Like we, yeah, that, that question, by the way, of why did God not just jump right into the New Testament? That is something we're going to take up a bit later in one of the topical lessons, because I think that's a good one. Yeah, it, I like how you put it because you said he knew his purposes so that he knew how this would all work in. And that's a key aspect, too, because you have to see how the Old Testament works into the New Testament. You actually lose something if you just cut off the, the Old Testament. Like, eh, who cares about that? Let's just go to the New Testament. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Why do you think it mentions that? To give a human example. What do you think is going on there? Yes, sir. I think he's just showing that even when there's a contract between me and you, and we've set the terms, once we've agreed to those terms, there's no changing that. It's been agreed upon. That's evident in a, man, a man's agreement. So with God, Yeah, so it's like this is he's appealing to a logic that we apply to all sorts of things. I can't just write up a contract and then write up another one without dealing with the first one and just act like it overrides it. That's if you're in a court of law, they're going to look at it sequentially and say, "Well, this one's first. That's the one that actually is the binding one." Yeah, that's true. Yes, sir.
okay, this is, this is a good, and we're going to talk about this. This is one of the questions I want to dig into. You notice what he said here. He said, there, if a law, and the Greek is, is emphatic here, it's very clear. If a law could have given life, it would have been that one. Right? If God was going to do through a law, he would have done it through the Torah. It makes total sense. Think about how many years it took to, to get the Jews to understand that, how long it took for them to even understand it. Like, why? If it was going to be by law, it was going to be by that, which is precisely why on Sunday we have to talk about the new law versus the old law because I don't think what you should take away from that is new law is, oh, it's just like an old law would, here's a big checklist, and we have a different checklist over here. There's, there's some nuance there about how this plays out. I think this plays out in a way that's different than just the, it's a different let of, list of requirements. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's so. Yeah, Jesus does the same thing with parables. They employ on on some sort of logic that is universal enough that he can start from there. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, John, I think I saw your hand raised. Yes. Okay, this, this is, we're going to talk about this later, too, because the topical lesson on freedom in Christ, you picked up on something. that I, There's two ideas that are crossed there. There's the idea of the relationship, and then there's the idea of freedom or slavery. And I think this is actually a key distinction. So slaves versus sons, and also the law was there to make order, but it was not necessarily, as you said there to give freedom. Like these concepts, if you get them both, you'll see that they're actually linked together. They make a lot more sense. And Jesus makes that point. It's not just that Paul's making the point. Jesus actually makes this point in the, in the gospel accounts as well. Yeah, so that, that's a good one. We're going to spend a lot of time on that. Yes, sir. You know, one of the questions in the book is about the, which covenants are they talk about. And I think this sometimes, at least in New American Standard, gets a little confusing because it calls it the promise. And then the next person calls it covenant, I believe, is what he's referred to. The promise to Abraham was the first covenant, and then the law came 430 years later was the second covenant, which doesn't annul the first one. Because it's real easy for us to think, oh, the first covenant was the Old Testament, and the next covenant is the New Testament. Yeah, that's true. We simplify it. There's old law and new law. So the old, the first covenant was for us is the old law, and then the new covenant is, I mean, it's actually a little more complicated than that. You have to go back to the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, I agree. And it can be a little bit confusing, especially because, and there's a hint here that the covenants are not just simply different rules, but of the exact same type, because one of me calls the promise, right? You have to kind of sit there and read it real closely to figure out which one he's talking about. There's also another point of confusion. Sometimes people are confused. Is he talking about, when he talks about the promise, he's talking about the new covenant. And that, and I can see where some would be confused on this, because the new covenant looks a lot like the Abrahamic covenant. Like, when you really go back and understand some of this stuff, you see a lot of parallels here. And it's harder to see as many parallels, I think, 
with the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, did I see your hand, Mitch? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Paul's really good about explaining himself. And then he'll say all this, and then on the second thing he goes, and this is what I mean. So he's referring back to what he just said. I said this, and this is what I meant by it. And then you go over to verse 1 in chapter 4, and after all he finished up chapter 3, he goes, I mean. So he's, what I, what I said, this is what I meant by it. Yeah, that's true. Paul's good about explaining why he's looking at these passages. Although I'd say, nine if that's true, then why did I struggle so much to make sense out of 3.11 and Deuteronomy 21? Because Paul the same time. No, I agree with you. Although he's slightly cryptic, I'd say in one sense, I don't disagree with you because you're right. Uh, he does tell you why. But then it's like, when you want to go that level below, that's when you have to do like a ridiculous amount of reading to figure it all out. And then you're like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. But it is, it is very fast, too. Like, this is why we're spending so much time on chapter 3 versus chapter 4. I think we're only going to have two lessons. I think chapter 5 is either one or two. And in chapter 6, it's like half. I mean, it's going to go really fast past that because it's way easier. Uh, I think I saw Mitch. I think that's exactly correct. Yeah, they seem to be holding Moses in higher regard or as high regard as Christ. And this is part of the problem. As soon as you do that, you're going to have it all backwards, which is precisely why when you go back and you read about Moses, and Moses never thought they were going to somehow complete the law by doing everything that was in the law. That's why he constantly points. He says, look, you're going to get the blessings, and then you're going to get the curses. Well, <laughs> he's telling you, he's like, you're going you're gonna to do it right, and then you're going to do it very wrong. So Moses was looking forward to the promise. But he understood this, and people who misunderstand that actually misunderstand Moses. And I think part of what, to your point, Mitch, I think what Paul's saying is it's not that they get Moses right and they get Christ wrong. It's actually, they get Christ wrong, they get Moses wrong, because Moses never thought this was going to be the ultimate end all, and they get Abraham wrong. So let me get this straight. You guys got the Abrahamic covenant wrong, you got the Mosaic covenant wrong, and you got the new covenant wrong. You're batting zero for three, right? This is not good. Uh, I saw another hand raised. Did you hit? Yes? Yeah, there's, there's sacrifices in the Old Testament, but then there's, there's, like we talk about how we as Christians don't sacrifice. Well, there's one sacrifice in the New Testament, right? Which is a much bigger one. Yeah, because yeah, it's not just a human sacrifice. It's even bigger than that. Mike. I think it's interesting in um, verses 22 and 23 when he's talking about faith. It almost implies that faith wasn't even a thing until Christ was there to have faith in. Because um, it says, when faith came. Hmm. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, um, that word 
maybe the word believe or it's the concept of faith, but the word faith is not really used. And so I think it's interesting that faith, and we hear, you know, Christ talked a lot about faith in his teaching and so forth. So um, was this a was this a new concept or a new idea or a new level of belief before than, than, than what they had before because the law kind of took that away from them. They didn't need to have a faith because they had it written down and this is what they were following. But now it's different. Yeah, it's a good question. So what do you think about that? It's He talks about how faith, but faith needs to have an object to have a faith in. And it, it talks about here how faith came, but Jesus came. But the idea there, we can at least see something in the Old Testament. So is it different? Is it, was it there and we just didn't see it? What do you, what do you all think about that? Yes, sir. Okay, that's a good point, because when we, def- we have to define faith, this is always the problem, especially because the world misdefines it, like faith and faithfulness, which in the Greek would wind up being the same word, where the concept is there in both of them. Yes, David. Good point. To your point, it does say the it, it gives here the object of faith is now here, right? And to David's point, I, I, you're right. In Hebrews 11, is future looking, right? It's this whole idea of I'm waiting for God to do something, and I think there are. I mean, look back at two verse four, it gives you a hint of, of something here. But I do agree. There's a little bit of a distinction here, and maybe part of a distinction because part of the thing you have to have in the back of your head is how much was the problem that they were going back to the Mosaic Covenant? How much was it they didn't even understand the Mosaic Covenant, right? Now, I don't totally blame them because not all of the revelation was there. So I do get that. And I do think there's a certain twist here in the sense that you go back and look at it, and it seems kind of obvious in hindsight that the problem was, you know, as Bob pointed out, the problem was not that they didn't keep the laws, that they didn't even want to keep the law, right? It was always that. At the same time, think about how many problems. This is why there's a little bit of a tension here this is in, uh, in the, the question because there's similarities back there. You can see it that it was there in the Old Testament. Also, it does seem like there's a little bit of a change. Because there's people like Jeremiah who look forward to the day in which man will have his heart circumcised, right? So, so there's all these references to that being, there is a shift, I think, at some degree. Even though I think the concept was kind of there all the time. David Dixander? Yeah, I, I think you could make the argument that, in a sense, there needed to be more faith for those who lived under the old law, under the Old Testament, hmm. because it was looking forward to Yeah, that's true. 
it, his point is that sometimes in the Old Testament, maybe it was actually harder for them to have this. And I think there is some, something to that because remember what they keep saying. At one point, our hearts are going to be circumcised. So God's going to do something that is going to change us in a way that makes it so that we can believe. Yeah, good point. And they didn't see the full story, like you said. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I agree. He spoke to them directly. And I like how you put it out. It wasn't just that he spoke to them directly. It was the way that he spoke to them, which was that you go back and you read at the bottom at Mount Sinai, and he is frightening. And when you read that closely, Moses says, yeah, he's doing that because of the hardness of your hearts, right? There's something was kind of wrong there. And so he spoke to them directly. And you don't remember what they asked? They asked for a mediator. They asked for Moses to step in. Like, oh, you know, we just can't really put up with this anymore. So we talk about how we want to hear directly from God. Well, the Jews did, and they did not like it. So they asked for somebody to do it. And actually, in Jesus, we see God speaking directly to this, but in a very different way. Yeah, and like I said, I think the situation was different as well. Yes, John. guardian because of, and it makes sense again back to the, the situation was different and why is that different now? Well, we, to David's point, we see the whole story now. Now it makes a lot more sense to us, which it didn't make sense to them. Yes, ma'am. So this, this is absolutely correct. Okay, the word there for guardian is pedagogist. And sometimes people translate it as tutor. Here's the thing. Tutor makes it sound like this person does the teaching. That's actually not the case. It was somebody who, like, grabbed the students by the ear and they got them to the teacher. Okay, so that's like what the law was. It, was the, it wasn't supposed to be. I mean, in a certain sense, it was a teacher, of course. But its primary purpose was to get you to the teacher. So it's one direction out. Yeah, I totally agree. Anything else? Or should we actually get into the questions? <laughs> All right. Yes, sir. What about the relationship between baptism and adoption? He talks about uh, for many of you who were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, and just before that it says you were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
So I think it's interesting that there is a relationship there between the idea of, of our faith, of Christ's faith, of being adopted and being baptized into Christ, then as part of that becoming one of the adopted sons. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Do you see the idea there is baptism, and in the same context, there's the idea of adoption. I think the idea of adoption is a, really, is a big one, too, that we haven't really talked much about. And then becoming sons. There's a change of relationship. What do you all think about that? Think about how, what are the ideas of the adoption? Do you where that shows up in the Bible. Yes, sir. Yeah, and if you, you're right, you have to kind of read through because, like you said, it says it mentions heirs, which makes sense because slaves don't inherit, right? Sons do. And actually, even with the word sons, he, clearly he means both male and female, right? Like he specifically says that in the context, of which circumcision didn't apply, right? Circumcision only applied to men, so it inherently kept, left them out. And it didn't apply to Gentiles, unless they took the law that if they did that, they were effectively Jews. And even with the word son, it's it's difficult to know how to do there's a tra- if somebody's translating this because obviously it's you know masculine in form but the idea there is clearly meaning both male and female and i think part of what paul's doing there is that in the first century only sons inherited but he's saying according to this new covenant listen you're all sons Okay, you're not a slave, you're a son, and sons inherit. So he links that whole concept up to adoption, and that's how you inherit. It's like you said, you have to die to go through this to become a, t- a different type of person, which is a massive change of ad- identity, and that's exactly what he says in, in chapter 2, verse 20. Yes, ma'am. He also is talking specifically to the, the Jews here for trying to bring in the law, and he's saying, Yeah, and this is an important distinction because it's everybody gets to be sons under this, this covenant in Christ. That was not true for the Mosaic covenant, which is precisely part of the problem. It leaves the Gentiles out in the cold, right? So and if what these people are probably saying is if they're claiming to be Christians and saying we also want to do the law, they're, they're stuck because they're, 
you would imagine they're probably arguing that if you go accept the law, you somehow become a super Christian or something like that. You, right? It's like you, eh, you're kind of in, but maybe now you can really be in because you keep the law. But Jesus, or Paul here is saying it's, it's backwards. Under the law, you were a slave. You're going backwards. Okay? You're, you're, you are a son. You're already a son. You're, in, you're an heir. You're going to inherit. So you can go back and be a slave, but you're, you're actually missing the point. You have a new identity now. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, so one, one, I'm hoping to that you can clarify. Well, how about I start with number two, <laughs> and then I'll go back to number one so you can clarify. So number two, I find it interesting that at the beginning of this section, he is saying that there's only one seed of Abraham, but in the conclusion of this. We can all be heirs, descendants of Abraham, according to the promise. Going back to the beginning of what we were talking about. So I find that interesting. Um, so, number one, I've, I guess I have been reading verse 26 and 27, and I'm hoping you can maybe clarify this. It seems like 26 is making this statement. Um, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus because you were all baptized into Christ and clothed yourself with him. I know because is not there, but it seems like that is the way that that reads. Is that correct? That's how I read it. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what sure the alternative would be, but it does seem to logically follow because if you read it like that, okay, you're... You are all sons of God because, like I said, we'll stick that word in there, because you were baptized, then it, verse 28 would seem to logically follow, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, because this would apply to everybody, which would, of course, not be true if you tried to replace it with circumcision. It's going to leave some people out in the cold, which would be the, the contrast, I think. And then the other item was from, you're right, because he does argue from one, he, keeps, he makes that point, and, but then he, he ends with saying there's only one seed, right? But in the end, there is a plurality, which is actually, when you go back to the Old Testament, how it talks about descendants, it does the same thing. Where when God talks to Abraham, he's like, there's clearly descendants in a certain sense, it's going to be a nation. But there are some, if you read the Hebrew very closely, you will find that there are times in which it is it is singular, and it's not like singular in form, but it's plural in meaning. Because the word seed can be, it can be either way. We know that some of those times when he talks about seed, it is, it may be sing, or, yeah, well, like I said, singular in form, but the word seed can go either way. But then you'll see the pronouns. And some of the pronouns, it makes it very clear that actually he's referring to one of the people that will be in his seed. And those wind up being more messianic and pointing to Jesus. And Paul's saying, go back and read that. If you read it real closely, you can see, yes, there's descendants, but there's one descendant that's going to do something special, and now we know who that is. That's Christ. Does, does that make sense? Okay. David. Yeah. When we talk about adoption, that reminds me of Romans 8, and there's a tie-in to what we were just talking about here as well. Uh, Romans 8, 14 through 17, says, For all who have been led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, for you have not received the Spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. 
I totally agree. So Romans 8 is contrasting those who are slaves, and he says, and implies there would be fear. And then he says, on the flip side of that, you have adoption to children, and which we can cry out, Abba, Father, which is, and we're going to talk about that too, so I'm glad you brought that up, and which implies a close relationship. Yeah, good point. All right, what else? Yes, sir. Yeah, so he says that he makes a point about being heirs and then one in Christ. So the, the, uh, the lack, how do you put it, the lack of individuality, right? We're part of this big body. And I think it's precisely what Paul's saying is like, God is one. He's, he makes that point later in here that if there is one God, there's no tribal gods. It's not like there's a, a God out there for the Romans and a, a different one for the Greek and a different one for the Jews, which is exactly how they thought of it. If there's one God for all people, wouldn't it logically follow God wants to have a relationship with all his people and would, would bring them all together? And I think it's exactly what you say. And I like what you said about the individuality, too, because if you look at other passages, I think it's kind of what's going on here in the background. And Paul applies it when we get to the end, where they're doing it because they're trying to set themselves up. Right, this is when it's like, I need to make myself being better than other people. See, that I don't think you're thinking about, you really haven't understood what that idea of one in Christ actually means. Because you're not supposed to bring yourself honor, you're supposed to bring Christ honor. And when you could flip that, that's when you have a body that's capable of being one in Christ. Yes, ma'am. Okay, question was, how would this work before Christ came, right? For the people who weren't, they couldn't be found, quote, in Christ because they didn't know about him. What do you all think about that? Yes, sir. Okay, so taking Hebrews again in, then that would seem to imply that people were justified by their faith even back then, which, of course, Habakkuk 2 verse 4 actually gives at least a hint of. Yeah, good point. And that's a good point because even when we say they couldn't have faith in Christ, of course, that's true in a certain sense. At the same time, did you catch this where early on in, chapter, in Galatians it said it was the gospel to Abraham? Well, how in the world could be Abraham didn't know who Christ was? But then again, you go back and look at Abraham. Abraham believed the promises of God. 
And the, I mean, so you see that throughout the Old Testament. For those who were faithful, they believed in God. And, God, and if you go back even in Exodus, there's constant complaints about how the people don't believe God for all the good things he did for them. That should have actually caused a change of heart. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so it's almost like to say that Jesus' blood did have a retroactive effect on those who were faithful to him before. Which makes sense because we know that the only author of Hebrews says this, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Was, are we saying that those people weren't justified? Well, it's clearly not because even in the New Testament there are cases where it was obvious that there are people who were pre-New Testament times who were with God, right? We see that, so we, we know that's the case. That's the first bell, right? Yes, okay, good. We have not gotten to any of the questions on my list, which is awesome. So now we have to make it a goal to not go through any of them and just close out at least one of the classes. Right? We didn't go at, at all on pretty much, which is great. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's true. So the phrase Abba Father probably would have meant something to them. And that's because it was Jeremiah 3 that you were quoting, right? Yeah, Jeremiah 3 mentions that like one day you're gonna, I'm going to have a real relationship with you. Okay, because their, again, hearts were changed. So they, would have, they should have seen this coming. The Old Testament seems to be what the prophets refer to it repeatedly. And here's another example, by the way, of a prophet who didn't think the Jews were ever actually going to accomplish the law. It was Jeremiah. Because he, he speaks about, oh, man, I look one day when God's going to fix all this because we need fixing. Did I say another? I thought, yes, David. Okay, so Hebrews 9 talks about how there's a death to take away the transgressions of the first covenant. That, that's a really good verse to say. Uh, clearly, it, it, would, it wouldn't be doing anything if it didn't address all the sins. Like, that was the whole point of Paul talking about the Old Testament, how all the sins were there. It had to have been washed away, and this is clearly referring to that. Yeah, good point. Very good point. 
Yes. Talk about this term, Abba Father. That is actually literally a term of endearment, right? It's like a child would address their earthly father. Christ addressed him that way in the garden. We pray in the garden. And the word we use today is, I've heard it said it'd be like saying daddy, right? The term of endearment, child to their father. And I sometimes wonder if we look at the word father when we're talking about God, and we think that's more of a title, more of a almost on a pedestal, unapproachable, it's the only way that I can get into tension, instead of this, this relationship, this term of endearment that, that as a son, you've been adopted, as a son, I should be able to approach him as my Abba, as my dad, as my, without, without making it, you know, inconsequential, but, but just so that there is a true heart relationship, not just a, I'm afraid of you, if you want to have so I'm going to address you. I 100% agree. Yeah, the word Abba, it, it is, it's used for, it would be used by adults too. The, I used to, well, I put my foot in my mouth when I was teaching this a while ago because I said something about how daddy maybe is a good way to put it because adults don't call their fathers daddy. Yeah, apparently some do. <laughs> I didn't know that. So he's like, oh yeah, I totally call my, and the person was, was like 70 or 80. I'm like, okay, I guess that's the thing. So I can't say that. Uh, it is what, what, grown men would use for their father, but it is. It is, a, it is definitely a term of endearment. So I agree. We may take the word father sometimes and think of it as, I think you put it, as a title. And I think it's more than that. It's supposed to be a close relationship. If you see the rest of this, relationships, understanding that he sees this as a relationship is a key to really making sense out of all of this. So I, I yeah, 100% agree with you. And by the way, why didn't he just say the word pater in here, like the word father. He, he says Abba, father. he's trying to get you to see that it's supposed to be something close. Yes, ma'am. It goes back to, to where he says, those who are putting back Christ and put on Christ or cover yourself in Christ, the, Yeah, this is a good point. You have to connect Abba Father with the point about how it's your spirit. His spirit is in you. Okay, so it's a changed heart. This only makes any sense if you have a relationship because you have a changed heart. Not this whole, uh, I'll just accept God's, what God has done for me is fire insurance and then go and live my life as if I'm unchanged. Right? That, that is not what's going on here. Yeah, good point. And we successfully did it. We just did not go on the island. That's okay. All right, thank you all.